So, welcome to the Hoover Book Series. Yeah. My name is Jack Goldsmith. I teach at Harvard Law School, and I'm a senior fellow at Hoover. I am thrilled tonight to be discussing this great book, The Internationalists, The Internationalists, with Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro of Yale Law School. Uh, it got an extravagant review this morning in the New Yorker. I highly recommend that you read read the review. It's an excellent overview of the book and the book's claims, some of which we're going to talk about tonight. Some of you may have heard of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, the 1928 pact that, among other things, uh, renounced war as a tool of government policy. And when I teach international law, as I do occasionally, uh, we, we glance at the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and we usually do so to make fun of it, because it renounces war in 1928, and then there are a series of events, wartime events, that leads up to the greatest war that we had, World War II, so the conventional wisdom is that this treaty was a failure and a nothing burger. And uh, Ona and Scott turned the conventional wisdom on its head and put it in a very large historical and legal arc. And it's an amazing book. And to start off, why don't you tell us what the book's about? Yeah, so I'll say a few words. Thank you so much, first of all, for having us here. It's a real pleasure to be at the Hoover Institution and uh, to be here with Jack Goldsmith, who I've long admired. We don't agree about everything, but uh, we, uh, Including uh, the significance of the Kellogg-Briand Pact? No, <laughs> just kidding. I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. persuaded <laughs> I'm persuaded. Yeah, Go ahead. Good. Yeah, no, um, but but always deeply respect um, your views and and really grateful for the reading that uh, Jack did of an early draft and gave us amazing feedback, which was incredibly helpful. So all the remaining mistakes are yours now. <laughs> They're actually. They're definitely ours. Um, so the book is on the surface about the Kelly Grand Pact, which we call the Paris Peace Pact. Um, but really what we're trying to uh, argue is that you can't understand the modern era without understanding that war was outlawed in 1928. Uh, and that seems like kind of an outrageous fact to, to say, and it seems like a crazy thing to try and outlaw war. And you might think, of course it was ineffectual. Of course, it was a ridiculous thing to do. Um, and in some ways, it was kind of a crazy thing to do, but it wasn't ineffectual. And the argument we're trying to make here is that, in fact, something really important happened when war was outlawed, that the fact that war was outlawed began a process of transformation in the international legal order, which was then cemented in 1945. And understanding that helps you better understand the world in which we live today. Um, and that's really the central purpose of the book. So it's structured in three parts, just very briefly. First part lays out what we call the old world order, which is how the world used to look. And what we're trying to say in showing this is that the world was just extraordinarily different. Um, it isn't the case that there wasn't a legal order. There was a legal order. Um, and it was centered around a very different vision of war. War was the central way in which states resolve disputes. It wasn't the breakdown of the system. It was the system. Um, then the states of the world gathered together. It was the most signed treaty in the world at the time with the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which again we call the, the Peace Pact. Um, and they outlawed war. And they didn't quite understand what they were doing. They knew they were rejecting war, but they didn't understand what a transformation they were putting in place. And what that unleashed was a period of great instability, but also a period of great transformation and change. And the internationalists that the book is named for 
engaged in this process of rebuilding an international legal system around a completely different vision of the world. One where war was no longer legal, but it was illegal, and where therefore they had to find very different ways of solving problems that war used to take care of. Um, and then the final, and the middle part of the book is that transformation. The final part of the book is how do we understand the world differently today in light of that transformation? And what are some of the things that we can see in the world um, that are different because war was outlawed? Um, so that's the basic structure. I won't go on at length because you have perfect. many questions for that's us. That's perfect. So I'd like to ask questions about each of those three periods. So could, Scott, could you give us a sense of what that pre-Kellogg-Briand Pact world, pre-Paris, what do you call it? The Paris Peace Pact, Paris the Peace Pact. The pre-1928 pre, Peace Pact world was like, because that too is surprising to a lot of people, the extent, how war was used. Uh, as, so I'll let you tell us about the first part of the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as, as, as Ona said, um, it sounds ridiculous to outlaw war only if you don't appreciate the vital role that war used to play in something that we call the old world order, which is the pre-1928 world. So before 1928, uh, war was legal in the sense that it was the way in which states resolved their disputes. It was like a court, except that the way you won was kill the other side. Um, and the casus belli, the causes of war, were what lawyers today call causes of action. That is, any time a state had suffered a wrong and could not get reparations for their wrong, as a last resort, they could go to war. And the wrongs that they could go to war for were not just the wrongs that we recognize today, like self-defense, but things like collecting debts, um, collecting uh, uh, compensation for property damage, resolving dynastic disputes, inheritance claims, anything you could go to war, uh, anything you could go to court for, you could also go to war. Now, when to say that war was legal didn't just mean that states had the right to go to war. It also meant that the old world order relied on war and rewarded it. So all states had the right of conquest. So if a state had been wronged, as a last resort, it could use force and capture territory and thereby become the sovereign of that territory, own all the property that the previous sovereign had owned, and have legal authority to rule the population over which it conquered. Um, for example, uh, in the Mexican-American War, uh, the United States went to war. It's their main legal claim was that Mexico owed the United States uh, debts, which in fact did owe. Um, and the reason why California is part of the United States is because it was the way in which uh, the United States could satisfy uh, the, 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 the unpaid bills. Um, the, not only could you go to war um, um, f in order to right wrongs, but you could threaten to go to war. Uh, the Old World Order accepted gunboat diplomacy. So when Commodore Perry uh, entered Edo Bay, Tokyo Bay, um, and demanded that the uh, Japanese trade with the Americans, uh, the treaty that was signed at, at, at Cannon Point um, was under the law, legally valid, and 
and the United States could go to war for violating that treaty. If you can go to war, you can threaten to go to war. Not only, not, states not only had the right to go to war, but they could not be punished for going to war. So um, uh, in the Treaty of Versailles, the, the, the victors publicly promised to arraign the, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, uh, except that the Netherlands would not give the Kaiser up, which is really an incredible fact, because if you think about the Netherlands today, I mean, it's the capital, world capital of international criminal law. The fact that it would not give up um, the Kaiser because the uh, international law did not permit the criminal prosecution of, of the Kaiser is amazing. Lastly, the, not, the, the, the law not only permitted uh, uh, violence, by states, but it also prevented other states from using nonviolent means. So economic sanctions, which is the standard way in which states enforce international law nowadays, were illegal in the old world order. S neutral states could not interfere between belligerents, treating one better than the other, because after all, the belligerents had the right to go to war. So the picture here is not just of states having the right to go to war, but that the entire system was built around this fact, the right of conquest, the immunity to prosecution, the power of gunboat diplomacy, and finally the prohibition on economic sanctions presents a whole picture of a world built around war. And let me just say that this part of the book is an amazing reconstruction of that legal regime. As someone who's not an expert in this period, but has read a lot in it, really, you really nailed and explained this very elaborate articulate legal regime that was very different from the one we have now. Um, and you do so, and I didn't say this, that the book is full of wonderful anecdotes of, of the people involved in, in, um, in these various regimes and regime changes. So before we get to the pact itself, what, I mean, I, as I see the book, I see the pact as kind of a point along a transformation that kind of pushed it along. But what led to 1928? What was it? Was it World War One? Was it kind of an accident, uh, the American ambassador kind of got uh, tricked, it seems. But it would give us the story essentially about what led to the Kellogg-Brown Pact and what led to this idea of that we need to renounce war, which seems, whoops, catch, yes. seems <laughs> preposterous on its face and probably yeah. seemed more so in 1928, I would think. Yeah. Maybe not. So I'll say a few words about that. Um, what led to it was partially World War I in the sense that um, the death of millions was shocking. Um, it was horrific. The, the destructive power of war was, was um, on full display. And there were peace movements that um, erupted around the world in response to that. Um, but the idea of outlawing war was a very um, different idea than had ever been there before. And the, and the person that we identify as the, as the person who came up with this idea is this unknown uh, bankruptcy lawyer from Chicago. His name is Salmon Levinson. He was just an ordinary lawyer. Um, he uh, had never had anything to do with international affairs in his life. Um, he, had, um, he got this conviction that the only way to end war was to make it illegal. And it was a kind of quixotic idea. Um, it was, it was, it was, you know, only the kind of idea that only an international lawyer could, uh, only somebody who was not an international lawyer could come up with. 
um, he, uh, he had this conviction that if we outlawed war, maybe then we could begin to end war. And he began developing his ideas. He happened to be friends with, um, with John Dewey, who was a great uh, thinker, of the, of the, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. He began trading ideas with him. Um, then he created a, uh, his own non-governmental organization, the American Committee for the Outlawry of War, to uh, campaign for this idea. He started writing his senators and his representatives. He, uh, he worked with politicians and friends and other scholars to present this idea to the world. He wrote an article for the New Republic, um, uh, putting this idea out there. Uh, and he really was a person who began the movement to outlaw war and, and this thought that maybe the way to address the scourge of war was to outlaw it. So 1928 happens and the conventional story is the Calabrian Pact is an utter failure because um, Japan invades Manchuria, Italy invades Ethiopia, Germany invades all of its neighbors, Japan attacks the United States, Japan attacks China. And so you see the Calabrian Pact, you see all these things happening, then World War II in general. Uh, and so, and yet, you tell an amazing story about how the Kellogg-Briand Pact had these kind of sinewy implications that were working themselves out all through that period and ended up um, manifesting itself. This is my words, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in the charter eventually. So why, I guess a couple of questions, why shouldn't we view those events leading up to World War II as just a rejection of the idea of Kellogg-Briand and showing that it's a failure, and how in fact was it letting it, was it, working its way pure, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I'll say a few words about that, and then Scott might want to add something. So part of what happens is, so they outlaw war. Um, and then they realize they don't really know how to make that work. Um, they didn't quite fully understand what it was that they were doing when they outlawed war, how central war had been to the entire international legal system. So just to give an example, um, in 1931, Japan, which had signed um, in a great signing ceremony, is one of the, was one of the 15 nations invited to participate in this very uh, 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 elaborate um, signing ceremony. Um, it had ratified uh, the treaty, and then it launches a war um, to invade Manchuria. Um, now, it, there's a long story that we tell about the facts that lead up to that. Um, I encourage you to read them. Mm -hmm. But the world then is presented with a, with a dilemma. So the, we've just all outlawed war, and a state has just gone to war. So how do we enforce this prohibition on war? We've just outlawed war. We can't go to war to enforce the prohibition on war. Um, so what do we do? Um, and the League was paralyzed. I mean, that had been the League's rules had actually provided for war to enforce the prohibition on war. But the pact basically said, no, you can't do that anymore. We're outlawing war altogether. War is no longer a legal tool for resolving disputes. And by that point, almost every state that was party to the League had signed on to the pact. And so they were hamstrung initially. Um, so one of the first things that they do is to try and work this idea out and they come up with this thought that, well, maybe the way to enforce a prohibition on war is to um, not recognize the conquest. And so Henry Stimson, who's the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, who happened to be a classmate at Yale of Sam and Levinson's um, and had been corresponding with, them, with him, um, had read an article that Sam and Levinson had read about what he called the sanctions of peace, where he proposes this idea of the sanctions of peace that is non-recognition. And 
he proposes this idea when, there's con when a state attempts conquest, the way in which you respond to that is not recognize it. Don't allow them to actually take it. They may, they may physically take it, but it's not theirs. And Stimson takes this idea and turns it into what's now famously known as the Stimson Doctrine, which is a doctrine of non-recognition. He issues identic notes to China and Japan and says, we're, no, we're not going to recognize this conquest. This is not um, a legal conquest. This is not uh, something that we're recognizing as having been legally valid. And that's really the first time that kind of pronouncement had ever been made, um, this idea of non-recognition of conquest, and that once you take something, it's not legally yours. And that really sets the stage for the unraveling of legal conquest, which Scott rightly described, was permissible under the old world order. And that's just one example. So each of the four threads that Scott laid out, I, I, won't, I won't lay out here in detail how each one plays out in, in the interwar period, but the story we tell in the middle part of the book, which is the thickest part of the book, is how each one of those begins to unravel and then how the internationalists start to put it back together again based on a very different central principle, which is instead of the central, central principle being war is legal, now the central principle is war is illegal. And we've got to figure out how to solve these problems in a very different way. And so that's what the pact gets going, um, is that process of solving these problems in a new way. And then can we jump to Nuremberg next? Is that the next yeah, step sure. to jump yeah. to? So, so tell us the story about the impact of, I think the next two steps are the impact on the Nuremberg trials of, of the Peace Pact and then on the Charter. Yeah. Is that the next two, is that the right yeah, way to do it? Yeah, sure, 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 yeah. Um, so what, 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 what is, I think, fascinating is that not only of the supporters of the pact um, were um, excited about the changes that the out, outlawry of war uh, would bring, that is the people like Stimson who thought that now that the, now that war was no longer legitimate, uh, states could not enjoy the spoils of war, but even the opponents of the pact recognized its revolutionary potential. And the key figure here for us in the book um, is the notorious German law professor, lawyer, Carl Schmidt. Now, Schmidt was sitting in the lecture room in 1927 when the ghostwriter of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, James T. Shotwell, who also, which I'll uh, mention, also wrote the first draft of the charter, um, uh, uh, his lecture in Berlin uh, describes the outlawry movement uh, three week, two and a half weeks before he goes to uh, Paris and suggests this to Briand, who then runs with it. Schmidt is totally freaked out. He thinks, wait a second, if this proposal is actually acted upon, it's going to be disaster for Germany. Because once they make war illegal, everything's going to have to change. All the rules are going to change. And in particular, if war is made illegal, they're going to make it criminal. And if Germany loses the war, it's going to be used against them. Now, um, he's, um, um, Schmidt then writes his most famous essay immediately after uh, the concept of the political, where he lays out the friend-enemy um, um, theory. Um, and he uh, is like Cassandra 
Is it fair to is it fair to say that he kind of figured out the implications before anyone did? Yes. He kind of worked it out and saw where it was going and its logical conclusion, even before the people who were doing it kind of figured it all out. Yes. Yeah. Ab absolutely, and that's what's so. Uh, I mean, that's first of all. I mean, Schmidt is such a problematic character um, for uh, for for many reasons, not n not least of which um, that he became a member of the Nazi Party and became an apologist for lots of um, the early actions um, of Hitler when he became chancellor. But he was a brilliant man. Um, and there was a way in which reading his work from the late 20s and the early 30s, you see him catching on before anyone else does. But he wants the he wants it to stop. Stop it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I mean, in some sense, um, we, we, we discovered this very early in the project, and, and it kind of gave us um, um, confidence that it wasn't just it wasn't just the supporters, but even um, to use the Schmidt thing, it wasn't just the friends of the pact, enemies. but also the enemies right. um, of the pact were um, were um, uh, saw the revolutionary potential. Now the story. Um, but, uh, the story proceeds that um, around 1942-43, uh, people start suggesting that maybe um, now that war is illegal, uh, the major Nazi, uh, the, the Nazis um, could be tried for waging aggressive war, um, and um, the the um, eventual story is that um, January 3rd. 1945, um, uh, FDR um, uh, signs off on the Nuremberg trial, um, which is not um, primarily a trial about the Holocaust. It is a trial about the Kellogg-Briand Pact and um, uh, the crime of aggressive war. The irony of this is that Schmidt himself is then interned for roughly two years after the war for violating the Kellogg-Briand Pact, ensnared in the trap that he had called out um, um, uh, almost 20 years earlier. Um, and um, it's, a, it's really a, a, a fascinating story. So, so without, because we're not all legal audience and our audience beyond this is not all legal, but can you try to convey how, the extent to which um, Kellogg-Briand was not about criminal, international criminal law, but it was transformed into a basis for punishing Germany, can you? And it was, and I wasn't ultimately sure exactly what your position was on that, whether that was a legitimate move or a bit of a stretch. Could you explain that? Yeah. So I, I would say um, it took some real fancy footwork. So the pact is really simple. It it's it's something that fits on the back of a postcard, um, uh, and um, it basically says the high contracting parties hereby renounce war as a solution of international, uh, something like that, it's, it's, uh, um, um, as a policy tool of national of policy, I think. Yeah, something. tool of national policy and a solution for international controversy, right. something like that. Um, it doesn't say anything about it being a crime. Um, and so lawyers had to come up with a theory by which it could be made into a crime. Um, and there were several theories by which um, um, this was done. Uh, one. One theory was that war, that 
killing people on the battlefield in, a, um, um, in an aggressive war is murder. It's just that when the law, international law, gave states the right to wage war, it put like a, um, a, a protective shield around um, all the soldiers and leaders um, not to prosecute them, lest if you prosecute them, you'll end up maybe prosecuting the people who were not engaged in aggression. So this kind of force field, legal force field that surrounded all um, soldiers and leaders was designed to enable victims to be able to right wrongs that they had suffered. True, sometimes you would protect those who were victimizing, but that was necessary in order to protect the victims. It's like free speech. You know, sometimes you have to protect um, Nazis from speech. Uh, you got to protect Nazis um, and their free speech in order so that you don't protect people who have good things to say. Now, the idea that lawyers used at Nuremberg was to say that the Kellogg-Briand Pact took away this force field, took away this shield, so that now when states engaged in aggression, they were engaged in murder. And murder's always a crime. Um, that was one, that was one um, way to do it. There are other ways to do it, too. Was it a stretch? Yes, but all legal arguments, good ones, are. All legal arguments that change the law. Wasn't it the biggest stretch in the world? Yeah, well, it, yeah the, 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 it was. Um, um, the, the, the people who came up with this were very, very talented lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what do you say, so this is a little bit off, but the standard claim is that absent the success of this legal argument, it's just Victor's justice. So do you think the argument was, this is a little bit off the point of your book, but I think you touch on it, was the legal argument powerful enough to defeat the Victor's justice claim, or do we just have to, yes, it was Victor's justice in a, in a good cause of moving the law along in the right way? No, I, I, I think... I think that, um, so let me, let me, let's be clear. The arg Victor's justice did not win in World War I. That is, right. that is the Netherlands would not give up the right. Kaiser. Right. Um, and That's really interesting, that's right. Yeah, um, and then World War II, there was a big fight among the lawyers, right. um, and it barely won. Um, and I will say By that- By it, you mean even having the trials. Yeah, yes. even, even, even having the trials, it was a squeaker. Um, and ultimately, the arguments that were used were very clever, but they are persuasive. Um, they're, uh, they're, they, the, the argument that I just used, that, the, that um, in the old world order, there was like a legal force field around uh, murder, um, and the Kellogg-Briand Pact took that force field away by making war illegal and thereby taking the state's uh, right to war away. That's a really clever, smart, conceptually pure argument. Right. And so I think arguments like that, um, because they made sense, even though they required creativity, um, I think made, uh, made the difference. Okay, so next step is the Charter. I think we're all generally familiar with what the Charter does. It outlaws the use of force. It protects the sovereignty and independence of every nation. creates a narrow exception for self-defense. It says the UN Security Council can authorize force other than that. There's a prohibition on the use of force. Um, is that the next step in Kellogg-Briand? Is that yeah. the way to think about it? 
So our argument is um, that that's exactly right. Um, and in fact, uh, the line is a pretty direct one. So um, Scott mentioned James T. Shotwell, who was a ghostwriter of the Kellogg-Briand Pact. We discovered in the archives um, of a uh, undersecretary of state for Roosevelt, Sumner Wells, a document um, authored by James T. Shotwell, though it's just signed JTS, um, which uh, we believe to be the first draft of the UN Charter. Um, and it, um, this first draft of the UN Charter, which was written by James T. Shotwell um, as part of a uh, team that was working within the State Department beginning in 1942, trying to come up with an answer to the question, when the war ends, how do we keep the peace? Um, and he was part of this team, and he wrote up this initial draft. And he literally, at the very first draft, cut and paste the pact at the beginning of the draft of the UN Charter. So you look at this early draft of the UN Charter, it looks much like the UN Charter looks today, but it has the pact literally <laughs> written right at the very beginning. And um, that becomes the discussion draft for this working group within the State Department run by Sumner Wells. And they kind of revise it and revamp it. So it, effect, it basically morphs into what is today um, Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, that is a prohibition on the use of force. And um, we think that that lineage actually is quite useful to understand because you understand what they're really trying to do is take the pact and embed it within an institutional framework that will make it hold in the face of the kinds of challenges that they met after the pact was signed. So as Scott rightly said, the original pact is very brief. It just has um, two uh, central operative articles. It doesn't work out the whole apparatus. It doesn't create an institutional structure, in part because they had one, they thought, the League. But the League was at cross purposes with what the UN Charter, with what the pact was trying to do. So what they did in this process was they took the pact and they embedded it within an institutional structure they thought would actually make it effectual. Um, and so there's actually direct intellectual um, lineage and actually institutional lineage uh, between the pact and the charter. Okay, now up to this point in the book, and I, it, I, I'm entirely convinced. And this, the, the story of the intellectual history and the story of how ideas matter, starting back with Grotius and going all the way up to 45, is quite extraordinarily powerful. The rest of the book is powerful also, but I think it's, you, I think it's fair to say you'd agree it's, it's more contestable, or at least it'll be more controversial. And that is that this worked in some sense. But why don't you be very specific about the extent, because you have a very specific claim about the extent to which an idea that started in 28, developed through Nuremberg, gets instantiated in an institutional structure, that it succeeded. And, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in the room that don't think it succeeded. So you need to explain the extent to which you argue and demonstrate that it did succeed. Yeah, so let me just take one example. Yeah. Um, so one example is we have a chapter um, on conquest. And actually, we have some of our former research assistants in the room, uh, which we're really happy about. Um, and what we did is we went and looked at all instances of territorial conquest from 1816 to 2014. And Why don't we, you say just a couple words about what you mean by territorial conquest. We've talked about it a little bit. But. Right. So this is where states would seize territory from another state or sometimes non-state entity and incorporate it into their own territory. Um, just take the land and make it theirs. Take it land and make it theirs. Yeah. Um, and make a claim of sovereignty over this, over this territory. Um, and so we, uh, we examined all these cases of territorial conquest. And then we mapped it out to see 
does there seem to be a change? And we have a chapter that's devoted really to explaining all this. And what we found was conquests used to be quite common, um, that an average state could expect to be subject to a conquest roughly once every human lifetime. Um, these conquests were quite large. Um, and um, that um, changed. Um, that changed. So after 1948, um, the uh, likelihood of a state being subject to conquest uh, changed to roughly once, every, once or twice every millennium. So that's a pretty substantial drop. And then in the interim period, there was seizure of territory. But after World War II, almost all of those seizures were reversed. And that was really an unusual case. And I mentioned before the case of the invasion in Manchuria, where it was seized. And the world said, we're not going to recognize this. So Stimson says, we're not going to recognize this. The United States is not going to. The League followed suit. And every conquest that followed 1928 that was done in this illegal way was not recognized. And every one of those was reversed after World War II. And that was the first time that had happened. Not only did uh, the Allies, with some exceptions, um, not seize substantial territory, um, but nearly all of the conquests that had been made since 1920 were reversed. So that's one piece of evidence. It's not, uh, it's not uh, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily entirely prove our case, but I think it does give one uh, reason so to think that might be Before this book, here. there was a political science literature and a historical literature that there's definitely a documented decline in interstate war right. and a documented decline in war for conquest that you build on right. and that you offer an explanatory variable for. But there were other explanations, the rise of international trade, nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the idea that nations could extract resources better without having to actually take over the territory so it was more efficient. There are a whole bunch of other explanations. How, what is, how does your explanation fit in with those explanations? Yeah, so we don't deny the power of those um, explanations. We think that ours is, in a way, a supplement to them. So why are nuclear weapons used to keep the peace, not to take territory? Well, at least one of the reasons nuclear weapons, at least when the U.S. is dominant, um, are used to keep the peace rather than take territory is in part because there is this agreed upon set of rules, which is no more territorial aggrandizement, no, no illegal wars. Um, so we don't deny that those things are powerful, but in a sense we're, we're arguing that there's an underlying reason beneath them that hasn't previously been fully appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, May I, uh, so to take the last one you mentioned, which was trade, right. kind of sometimes called the capitalist peace hypothesis, which is that, well, it's just much easier to make money through trade than it is through war, that war doesn't pay anymore. Well, why doesn't war pay anymore? Well, in large part, it doesn't pay anymore because you can't conquer other countries because you can't, if you try, other countries are not going to recognize the seizures and the natural resources that you try to extract from you, you're not going to be able to sell on the international markets. That's one reason. Number two, and this is a reason which I, I think is, is, is not fully appreciated, all that would show the capitalist peace hypothesis, all that shows is that war is generally irrational. It doesn't show why it's illegal. That is, it doesn't show why the reaction to that was when Russia annexes Crimea, the, 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 the international reaction is not, is not, well, that was an irrational thing to do. You could have traded. 
No, the reaction to is, you're not allowed to do that. And we're not going to recognize what you did. And we are going to cut you off from trade for doing that. So we're not, we're not denying that, that um, it's, more, it's easier to make uh, money from trade than war. It's just that the explanation as to why that is the case is because the, rules have, the underlying rules have changed. So our, our explanation is not so much a competitor but in fact, um, completes these arguments. So, but still, a lot of people, we look around the world, and it doesn't seem like the world is very peaceful. The United States is, I think we're up to seven nations that we've dropped, that we've used air power against since 9 11, uh, maybe a couple with permission, but most not. Um, Transborder terrorism is rampant. There's been a rise, I think, in interstate conflict. Um, so, this is not a thesis about peace breaking out everywhere. Yeah, so we have a, a chapter entitled, Why is there still so much conflict? Um, uh, so trying to answer that and actually to say that it's not that everything is perfect in the New World Order. Um, and in fact, um, there are some unintended consequences that come about because of the prohibition on interstate war. Um, one of them that we talk about is that because states can no longer conquer one another, um, you actually have a proliferation of weak um, and small states. Um, so at the time that the UN Charter was completed, there were roughly about 60 states in the world. There were 15, 51 uh, members of the UN initially, but around 60 states in the world. Today, there are 193 members of the United Nations, depending on how you count, about 212 sovereign entities. Um, and part of that is because small, weak entities can continue to exist. They don't get conquered. Um, and um, small, weak entities are also often not particularly good at governing themselves, it turns out, um, and that you don't have to have an effective army, you don't have to have an effective tax collection system, you don't have to have those things in order to be a sovereign state because you're protected from conquest. Um, the downside of this is that you do have uh, weaker states, those weak states can survive, um, and that uh, you see civil wars breaking out in these states, and, um, and, you know, that is a real downside. And we actually graph the rise in intrastate wars um, that come in this period. And so part of what we're trying to do in the last part of the book is say, you see the world in a different way in light of this. You can understand and explain things that otherwise you wouldn't really have an explanation for. Um, and then you can, you, you can ask yourself, like, what kind of world is better to be in? Right? Is it better to be in a world where we face these kinds of challenges or one in which states are going to war with one another? Um, we think that for all its warts, the, the current world is a better one and that what we need to do is try and figure out ways to address these very real challenges. And how about it seems to be another challenge to the thesis. I have two more questions and we'll wrap up. Another challenge to the thesis is what seems to me to be the relentless expansion of the self-defense rationale for the use of force. You're absolutely right. We don't see use of force for conquest. But we do see a lot of interstate violence that we would call, call it war, whatever you call it. And we see it being justified, rationalized, maybe even legalized through, I mean, the charter itself, the words of the charter are very narrow exception. Yeah. And they've been slowly but surely relentlessly expanded Especially since 9-11, uh, they've been really, I think, reached the, reached the breaking point, the, some of the justifications that have been used in self-defense. It seems to me like the, the hydraulic pressure to use force that can't be squeezed in yeah. through one part of the legal regime is, is being 
is expanding another part of the regime, not for conquest to be sure, but still for interstate violence. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And, and in part, what we're trying to do here is warn of the dangers of that um, and argue against it, frankly. Um, to say that this relentless expansion of the self-defense rationale is beginning to cause the exception to swallow the rule. And that's very dangerous. Um, and in fact, the authors of the Kelly-Brand Pact um, understood this, um, worried about it. And it was part of the reason they didn't include an explicit defense. Um, uh, allow, they didn't expressly allow defensive wars in the pact initially. Is I think because that my reading afraid. is they ruled it out, basically. They didn't contemplate it. They did. Con they contemplated it. They didn't talk it. in the text. I mean, they didn't contemplate. Well, there was a discussion. There was initially they raised a couple of states said, "Well, can we still defend ourselves?" And and Kellogg says, "Yes, of course you can, um, but we're not going to put it in there because right. we put it in there, then everybody's going to kind of come up with a defensive rationale to kind of like what happened with the charter force, in a way, which kind of is what happens in the charter. I mean, I think part of what happens is when they create the charter, um, they're creating this whole huge institutional structure around it." Um, and it's clear that the great powers mean business. And there is a concern that there is a desire, because now you've got a much longer document. Instead of trying to keep it down to something really brief, and, you know, very simple, there's a lot of stuff going on. And the argument is made, let's be explicit about this self-defense rationale, but let's make it really narrow. And actually, there's a discussion of exactly this point at Dumbarton Oaks. The Chinese say, is this really narrow? Right. And the answer is, yeah, it's really narrow. And the U.S. delegation, in fact, represents that, um, that it's extraordinarily narrow meant right. to be that way. And so we actually, in the conclusion of the book, um, warn of this as one of the dangers. And I think you're right to put it as, like, this is a breaking point. We actually do think this is a breaking that's point. That's what I want to end with. So uh, I, don't, I read an earlier version of the book, and I don't recall you making this claim, but I've seen it made in the discussions of the book since yeah. it's in the last couple of days. And that is, you think we're at a real kind of decision point or turning point about you, Sad Bellum. Is it on the defensive war point, or is it broader than that? And can you, can you explain that? Yeah, so, so um, I, I think, I mean, I'll speak for myself. Yes, I'm worried um, about it. And it's not just the, um, the self-defense um, exception, which keeps on getting um, baggier and baggier, but um, even the, the humanitarian... Um, intervention yeah, right. um, um, arguments which have been used. I mean, it, it, in, a, in a legal system, you expect for there to be violations. So if there are violations of rules, that itself is, I mean, it's not, it's not to be applauded, but it's to be expected. The health of a legal system is not um, uh, measured by how many violations there are. It's how the system reacts to those violations, and if you if you um, if you uh, take the temperature of the international system now by its reaction to uh, to the actions of states, it seems uh, very problematic. So when um, when President Trump um, authorized the firing of missiles um, uh, in retaliation for the chemical attacks in Syria. Not reaction. Well, basically, or Macron said, "We'll do it next." And when Israel just fired missiles into Syria just what Thursday Thursday morning, and nobody said "boo." Yeah. 
Um, and so the fact that there's not a non-reaction to to uh, the to the violation of the uh, uh, the prohibition on the use of force that's extremely worrying. How do you tell? We're going to close soon. How do you tell? I mean, it could just be a non. It could just be that there's a norm developing for humanitarian intervention. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a Syria chemical weapons taboo exception, and that's what's explaining the silence. So it could be that the silence is just a narrow exception. It's not going to threaten the system, but it could be something more significant, more fundamental. How do we, I guess we don't know yet. We don't know yet, and I think one of the questions, I mean, part of what we are trying to argue for is let's try to make it exceptional. Right. Um, and that is very dangerous to get into this mode where you think, well, because there was a violation of the rules, therefore force is an appropriate response. That's the story we tell about the old world order. I mean, all the violations that authorized war in the old world order were, in fact, violations, failure to pay debts. Um, uh, engaging in various kinds of illegal behavior, failing to abide by treaty obligations, those authorized Humani war. Humanitarian, humanitarian intervention. You really bite the bullet on humanitarian intervention, and you have to because that's an exception that seems like maybe we, we have to be able to make an exception for that, but it undermines the integrity of the system, and that's what you're worried about. That's what we're worried about, and we don't want to go back to a world in which force was an appropriate way to respond to these kinds of uh, to these kinds of violations. The system was set up as it was, and it is imperfect. Um, we fully recognize, and we try to explain in the book why the authors of the charter made some of the compromises they did, in particular why they agreed to the veto, um, which initially the U.S. resisted. Um, uh, but they made this system the way that they did in order to try and instantiate this rule against using military force in order to resolve problems. Um, and they tried to make it as airtight as they could. Um, it's not perfect. It leads to all kinds of problems. But what we're trying to argue is it's much better than the alternative, and we ought to be extremely careful about, about um, acting in ways that um, undermine the system because the alternative could be significantly worse and much more dangerous. I think it's a perfect place to end. Thank you so very much. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.